2 Timothy 2, starting with verse 22. I'm reading from the King James Version. Hear God's word. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who was taken captive by him at his will. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray asking the Lord for guidance as we consider his word. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, which is a light unto our path. We're thankful for the truth that you give to us in it. We pray that you would help us to understand your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open and receptive to your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. About 35 years ago, Ann and I were active at a church in Arkansas, and uh, we went to church with uh, an elderly woman whose husband uh, was not a Christian and was not a churchgoer, and he was kind of a, an old, grizzled skeptic. And so the woman asked one day if I would come over to their house and evangelize her husband, talk to him about the things of the faith, and I said, I'd be happy to do that. And I talked with the pastor of the church and asked if he had any suggestions for me, and he said, no, I wish you well. He said, just look out for the dog. The last time I was there, it bit me. Anyway, so uh, this uh, added an extra layer of nervousness going to the home, and I went there, and, you know, I visited with the couple, and I didn't think I got very far, but it was a cordial enough, cordial enough conversation. And then a woman walked out to the car with me as I was preparing to leave. And all of a sudden, two dogs came around the corner of the house, two big Rottweilers, and I jumped in the car really fast and con continued the conversation with the, the window partly rolled out. And she said, oh, you don't have to worry about them. They don't bite. She said, well, except for Pastor Sagan, but, but he was afraid of dogs. You're not afraid of dogs, are you? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, a little bit maybe. And so I escaped unscathed, but I thought a lot, how do you evangelize really difficult cases? And especially difficult cases with large dogs. That's an extra layer involved. Notice Paul's advice to Timothy on apologetics and evangelism. There had been troubles in Ephesus. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.3, he left him behind to straighten out some of these problems. There's problems with heretics. We can see that in chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy. There's problems with libertines in chapter 3. Lots of problems to work through and how do you reach the lost? How do you evangelize these difficult people? And so Paul's advice, first, pursue holiness, 
in verse 22. Flee youthful lusts. They're not named, but they might be bad habits or besetting sins. Maybe it was uh, lust for money. If you look at 1 Timothy 6.10, at least that's mentioned. But there's a concern with striving for purity, flee youthful lust. And then cultivate godliness. Listen to what Paul says. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace. And we could talk a great deal about each of these particular characteristics, but this is a positive admonition for Timothy to pursue positive spiritual qualities. Compare it with 1 Timothy 6, verses 10 and 11. Here at the close of the first epistle, Paul says, 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and to pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. And so in both epistles, there's this encouragement to keep away from sin, forsake youthful lusts, but also to pursue positive spiritual characteristics. And then notice at the very end of verse 22, verse 22 with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, Paul had written in 1 Timothy 1.5 that this was the goal of his ministry, that people would follow the Lord with a pure heart. And Paul says here, you are to do these things with all that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. There's almost a suggestion that there are some who were within the Christian community that didn't have pure motives. They were there for other things. And so, Timothy is to align himself with those who are pursuing the Lord for the right reasons. Compare this statement with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart with what he says in verse 19. Having discussed some who've fallen astray, verse 19, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, there are a couple of really important assertions there. The Lord knows his. There's a reference there to the elect of God. There's a reference to what we might call the invisible church. But then Paul shifts and says, let everyone that names the name of Christ. There's a reference here to the whole visible church, all who would claim to be Christians, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And then in verse 22, pursue these things with all that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You'll notice here, I think, the importance of practical theology doctrine, theological 
uh, uh, focus can sometimes be esoteric and speculative, but Paul repeatedly emphasizes that the ones who follow the Lord must be committed to Him fully with their hearts and following the Lord in obedience. It's terrible when those who claim to be Christians live godless lives. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy 3.10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Now, when I think of the Apostle Paul, I think of a doctrine guy, right? And rightly so. And so it's in the Pauline epistles we see such a marvelous treatment of Christian doctrine. So when I think of Paul, I think of someone who's really strong on theology, and rightly so. But Paul says to Timothy, you've known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience. Or in his admonition in chapter 2, follow righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. And that's not to take anything away from the emphasis on the doctrine of Scripture. We'll talk more about that later. But it does show the importance of a practical theology in following the Lord with our whole hearts. Pursue holiness. Second, avoid quarrels verses 23 and 24. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strife and the servant of the Lord must not strive. It seems to me there's a concern about avoiding foolish arguments. The psalmist says, Psalm 53:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so a foolish argument is an atheistic argument. Paul says in Romans 1, verses 21 through 23, that professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, some of these people were probably smart people, but they became fools because they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, and they became futile and foolish in their speculations, and they exchanged the glory of God for the image of corruptible man. In other words, foolish arguments are those with humanistic and atheistic presuppositions. Avoid them. Avoid ignorant speculations, or here in the King James, unlearned questions. And it doesn't take long talking with people before you'll find someone who wants to throw out an irrelevant question, a, a silly or frivolous question. How many angels can fit on the head of a pen? I don't know. How big is an angel? Angels immaterial. How big is a pen? Who knows? Did Adam have a belly button? And I always like to say, the bigger question is, was it an innie or an outie, right? What kind of, who knows what kind of a belly button Adam had? <laughs> That's just one of my favorites. 
Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 26, 4, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Proverbs 27, 22, though you pound a fool with mortar and pestle, his folly won't depart from him. Don't get caught up in foolish and silly arguments. My kids would ask, if God can do all things, can he build a rock so big that he can't use it? And then uh, I'd throw him a, a monkey wrench, I'd say, Maybe, but then he could build a steam shovel that could lift the rock, and then they'd go off and ponder. I'm sure they would have a a good comeback if they didn't uh, just give up on it. Avoid foolish arguments. Avoid ignorant speculations. Avoid strife, knowing that these things gender strife. The Lord's servant must not strive. Now, there are some people that just like to argue and debate And in the ancient world, the sophists and the skeptics were experts at that. They loved to talk and wrangle and debate, and they just uh, lived for that. Paul encountered that in Athens in Acts 17. Listen to Paul's different admonitions about this. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5. If any man teach otherwise, 1 Timothy 6, 3, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strife of words, wherefore cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt mind and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is, uh, 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 supposing that gain is godliness, but from such withdraw thyself. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Verse 16, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Titus 3, 9, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first or second admonition reject. In other words, don't get caught up in strife and quibbling and quarreling. The Lord's servant must not strive. Uh, When I was um, in college, there was a Christian apologist that I, I would pay attention to, I guess, and he was kind of funny, but he said he always won debates because He talked loud, and he talked fast, and he spit when he talked. (laughs) Now, I have no idea if he spit when he talked, but but I heard tapes of him, and he certainly talked loud and fast. But I don't think that's really what Paul is getting at here, someone who's uh, just going off on a harangue. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul closes 1 Timothy 6 by saying, reject profane and vain babblings. Some people just want to argue. Don't do that. Third, be kind, verses 24 and 25. Or as we would tell our children, be nice, be charitable, be loving. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. The Lord's servant must not be pushy and belligerent. The Lord's servant must be gentle unto all, be gracious. The Lord's servant must be patient even when wronged. And this is a requirement for church officers. You'll find this in 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 3, being hospitable and gracious. The Lord's servant must be meek, verse 25, not pushy, not brash. There is throughout the epistles an emphasis upon meekness with a reminder of ourselves. Look at Titus 3, verses 2 and 3. Titus 3, verse 2, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. In other words, the same admonition to Titus that Paul had given to Timothy. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. And so Paul says, remember the kind of person you used to be. You used to be foolish and misguided and angry, and so don't act in that way. Don't be a brawler. Be gentle and meek with all men. There is an emphasis here upon compassion. In fact, if you look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, I think you see a reason for it in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. And the language here is really interesting. What does it mean that they are in opposition or that they oppose themselves? There's almost the sense, I think, that having denied God, they have denied the image of God and have denied the essence of reality. They have created a chaotic and depersonalized cosmos for themselves, devoid of God's presence, but it leaves them without value and meaning and worth. The presuppositions of a modernistic worldview undermines the essence of who we are as people made in the image of God. Uh, Let me tell you a story about 
uh, a kind of a debate that I had or a conversation with an atheist, and this was probably 40 years ago. Um, I was serving a church, and uh, kind of a new couple in the church said, say, we have this atheist friend. Would you mind talking with him? I'd be happy to talk with him. He said, you know, we studied philosophy like you did, and, and so it might be really interesting for him to hear from a Christian who's got a philosophy background. I said, I'd be happy to talk with him. So we set it up, and I, we came over to, to uh, the house, uh, and Russell was there. And we had a very polite conversation. He was very well educated. We enjoyed visiting. Mostly he wanted to know what Christians thought about this or that, and how would Christians respond to this kind of uh, uh, problem or issue. It was really useful, I thought. So had a, a good, positive conversation. I don't know how much headway I had, and then we ran out of things to talk about, and Victor's wife's had some pie, and we were eating pie. And then Russell said something that I'll never forget. He said, you seem like you're a happy and content person. And I said, yeah, I, th I think I am. He said, here's the deal. I'm not. He said, I'm a hedonist. I look for pleasure. I like to sin. And he used the term sin. He said, I like to sin. I think about sinning. I revel in sinning. But when I do everything that I want to do, it doesn't leave me satisfied. And, and I told him what he already knew. He, he knew that I was going to say this, that there was something lacking in his life, and that's why he was discontent. But I thought it was a really interesting testimony from someone who did everything that they wanted to do and it left them feeling hollow. I put him in the category of someone who was opposed to himself in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Be kind. Defend the faith. Also, verses 24 and 25, Paul tells Timothy that he must be apt to teach. Verse 24, be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, and being patient. And that term, as you know, is one of the requirements for an elder. And so, you can look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. This is a unique requirement for the elder apt to teach. And it presupposes that they have a knowledge of Scripture. Indeed, Paul reminds Timothy that he must know the Word. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And it presupposes a knowledge of doctrine. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 16, that the Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for the teaching. You have to know the Word. You have to know doctrine. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says this in verse 16, 1 Timothy 4, 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. And so if I hear someone say, 
oh, I don't like doctrine very much. What I always want to say, but I don't because I'm, I'm trying to coach myself to be nice. What I want to say is you should repent because the Bible tells you that the Scripture is good for doctrine, so you shouldn't say, eh, I don't like doctrine. Um, but, but I try to be nice. I, I'm just, I'm trying, right? <laughs> the Lord's servant must be willing to defend the faith, and the servant of God must know, must be able to teach, knowing Scripture, knowing doctrine. He must be able to correct, verse 25, 2 Timothy 2, 25, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. And the term instructing could be teaching or correcting. It is a reference to polemical theology to show what the faith isn't. Right? You want to be able to show what the faith is with the Scripture and with doctrine, and then to correct people to say, no, no, that's not right. That's incorrect. Here is what's right. He must be able to correct. And so we find in Paul's writings to Timothy and Titus frequent reminders for them to teach the truth and to correct those who are in error. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to stop the heretics. In fact, in 2 Timothy, Paul names names, Hymenaeus, chapter 2.17, Philetus, chapter 2.17, Alexander, chapter 4, verse 14. You've got to be able to correct people who are teaching error. And I would say, if everyone is saying, okay, much of this is directed at church leaders, church officers, I would say that all Christians are supposed to be apologists at least in some regards. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that this is a responsibility we all have. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. And now what Peter tells us here is that we're to sanctify Christ in our hearts. We are to be ready to make a defense or an apology anytime, any place. We're to be gentle and fearful, we're to keep a good conscience and maintain a good conversation, exactly the same things that Paul told Timothy. And my final point from verses 25 and 26 is to remember sovereign grace. Consider the poor sinner's plight. He might think that he's his own man, he might think that he's a free thinker and he's liberated, but Paul tells us that these sinners are in the devil's snare, verse 26. They have been taken captive by the devil, verse 26. They are forced to do the devil's will, verse 26. 
and they are opposed to themselves, verse 25. Paul's language here reminds us of the doctrine of God's effectual calling. Listen to what Paul says, verse 25, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now, that's a powerful clause. You're dealing with people who are ensnared by the devil, and the hope and the prayer as we talk with people and help people is that the Lord will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. This is God's effectual calling. We believe that faith and repentance are essential to conversion. But we know that hard-hearted people are at enmity with God, and they do not seek Him. And so God must give the gift of faith and repentance for them to come. Acts 13.48, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 16.14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart, and she attended to the things taught by Paul. John six sixty five. Jesus said, No man can come unto me except it were given unto him by the Father. And the next verse, John six sixty six. from that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now, it's not that the teaching of Jesus is unclear. No man can come unto me except it were given unto him by the Father. But it is disliked. And so if you tell people about your confidence in the sovereign God who is the one that draws people to himself and grants repentance, some people will have nothing to do with it. It's not the first time. They wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus when he taught those things. Notice as well the language of verse 25 that repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. Now, when I studied apologetics in seminary, they always said that knowledge leads to repentance, right? If you've got more arguments, more evidences, more information, then it'll lead people to Christ. But Paul flips the equation and says, if God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. In other words, the hand of God has to be on a person for their heart to change, for them to be willing to receive the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the gospel. Our problem isn't a head problem, but it's a heart problem. Man is in rebellion against God. Unless he repents, he will be hostile to God, to his word, to his truth, and to the gospel. Man is in bondage, a captive to Satan. He's dead in his sins. And to be saved, he must believe the gospel, repent, and embrace Jesus Christ. And to do that, the sovereign God has to enlighten him, to raise him, and to grant repentance. And so one of the things that you can do 
is to pray for the success of the gospel. If the Lord is the one that touches the heart and his Holy Spirit is the one that draws people to Christ, then you should pray for the salvation of those who need the Lord. As some of you know Joe Moorcraft. He said once, Joe did, that everyone is a Calvinist on their knees. And he knew this old holiness Pentecostal preacher woman who hated the doctrines of grace. But she said she could pray with the best of them, and she would pray, God, save my Uncle Ned. Because when it came to the salvation of this loved one, she wanted God to reach out and grab that person and draw him to the foot of the cross. I'll tell you a story about Herb Titus. Some of you may know him or know of him. Died a couple of years ago had a major impact on Christian law. He was a law school professor, and he was the dean of a couple of different law schools and had a long and amazing career as a Christian jurist. Well, he had a very conventional secular upbringing, I guess. He had uh, gone to University of Oregon, very successful, Phi Beta Kappa. He had gone to Harvard Law School, graduated with honors. He had taught at different law schools around the country and finally was a law school professor at the University of Oregon. But he said his life was a mess. I had an opportunity to interview him and ask him about his testimony once. He said, you've heard about card-carrying members of the ACLU. That was me, literally, he said. I carried an ACLU card in my, in my wallet. That, that was the guy. But he had family problems, and his life was a mess. And what do you do if your life is a mess? You go to church. And he wandered into an OPC church out in Oregon, and he sat in a Sunday school that flipped his life upside down, and he was dramatically converted and became a servant of the Lord. He was saved. He went off to study with Francis Schaeffer and became one of the most faithful witnesses of a Christian approach to law. Now, if you had stood back in 1975 in Eugene, Oregon, and said, what's the likelihood that this liberal agnostic, ACLU card-carrying law professor is going to be saved, you'd say, not much. But the Lord can grab his people and bring them to faith. And so pray for the conversion of your friends and family member. Pray for the success of the gospel ministry Dr. Stazen has an opportunity to work in Romania. Pray for his success as he speaks because we believe in a God who is all-powerful and a God of sovereign grace who can touch the hardest heart. I've titled this message, The Apologetics of Grace, in part because I wanted to recognize the operation of God's sovereign grace in bringing people to salvation. We are used of the Lord, and 
We can share our faith and we can answer questions and we can pray for people, but ultimately it's the operation of our sovereign God. And also to remind us that we should be gracious and kind and long-suffering, remembering maybe that we were little rascals once ourselves, and we should be as patient in reaching others as uh, hopefully people were in ministering the gospel to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, for the admonition of your word. We pray that you give to us a heart to follow it. We do pray for the lost, and we worry about people who have strayed from the faith or folks who are hostile to the faith. We know that you can bring them around. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work, We pray that you would open the hearts of people to believe. We pray that you would grant repentance leading to knowledge. We pray that you would be glorified as the gospel is proclaimed and as people come into the kingdom of Jesus Christ and find salvation from their sins, newness of life, and the promise of life everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in closing to the Trinity hymnal, hymn number 271, How Sweet and Awful.